Hi everyone, you are listening to The Wildlife, a show about the natural world and how to protect it. Today, it's all about elephants, with elephant expert, Lynn Von Hagen. We talk about virtually everything, basically uh, uh, elephant behavior, if it's true that elephants never forget, elephant graveyards, the size of elephants, human interactions with elephants, trophy hunting, the fantastical world of elephant communication, and so much more. This episode is pretty much raw conversation. Uh, I don't know that there's any point throughout the entire episode that I have to interject with anything because um, Lynn is just that good of a communicator, of a science communicator. So stick around. We'll be back in a moment. I guess um, for some more uh, general elephant stuff, and by the way, I was really excited because I signed on to uh, Bing this morning and the background was two elephants. And I was like, oh, it's perfect. Oh, cool. Perfect day for that. Um, but some of these are submitted by listeners. Some of them are ones we just uh, were really curious about and accumulated. Um, but the first one is uh, how, how big do they get? Wow, really big. Um, so there's... <laughs> Uh, now, just to clarify, too, there are actually three elephant species. There are African elephants, which is what I specifically work with. There's Asian elephants, and then there's um, African forest elephants. Mm. African elephants are the biggest, um, and it's really interesting. There's a lot of sexual dimorphism, meaning that males and females are very different when it comes to size. So a male can be almost one and a half times the size of a female. Wow. Um, and males grow throughout their life. So, you know, most mammals hit a certain point and then they just stop growing. Mm -hmm. um, males tend to get bigger and bigger, at, you know, as, as they even mature. Um, so if you see a male versus a female standing next to each other, a lot of times people think, well, that's, that's an adult and a baby and it's not, it's actually a male and a female. Because, oh. um, the size can be so different. Um, and of course, um, you know, a lot of the little ones are very small. Uh, people often also mistake young males for infant, uh, not infants, but um, but subadult elephants. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, a 14 year old male versus a 30 year old male is, you know, just a huge size difference. Um, but they can get uh, between eight and 13 feet tall um, and up to seven tons. Wow really big That's and huge. um no matter what no matter what you see on tv when one is next to your vehicle it's 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 always going to feel bigger in person that's for sure did you i'm sorry did you say 30 feet no eight to 13 feet. oh okay i was like hold up a second <laughs> that's some lord of the Rings stuff okay yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense i i was uh a little shook there for a second yeah sorry so. 13 yeah eight <laughs> Do do males and females have tusks? Um, in African elephants, yes. Okay. Um, but a lot of times you will see, uh, you know, especially in our population, uh, you will see females that either have no tusks or one tusk. Hmm. Um, and then sometimes you'll see males with one tusk. And, it, you know, it's hard to know unless you can examine the elephant, which doesn't happen, whether it's been broken off in a fight or hmm. they were actually just born with one tusk. Hmm. Um, now, in Asian elephants, usually females do not have tusks, and some males don't. But with African elephants, um, they use them a lot socially. Um, mm -hmm. So you see them in, in, in most of the species. Interesting. Are they 
related to mammoths and mastodons or are they something different? Uh, they are, but very distantly. Okay. Um, okay. You know, mamm mammoths and elephants split about five to six million years ago. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and of course, all, you know, all of the, all of the closer relatives to elephants uh, went extinct in, in the Pleistocene uh, mm -hmm. about 12,000 years ago, approximately. Um, so there's, there's not a lot of relatives to the elephants left. You want to take a guess as to what some of them are? Um, is a rhino related? No. Um, really? They're, I mean, distantly again, but um, the closest living relatives to uh, elephants are manatees and dugongs, Ooh. which that's not super surprising. But the other one is the hyrax. The little guy? The little guy, the little furry <laughs> guy. <laughs> um, so that's always one of the biggest surprise for people is, um, you know, they call them rock rabbits or dassies. Um, and they are one of the closest relatives, uh, living relatives to elephants. They're so, I mean, elephants are adorable too, but those, those are just like so adorable, but also kind of like menacing in a way. I wouldn't have expected <laughs> that. Yeah, they're, they're all over Africa. They are... Um, you know they're considered a pest in some populated areas, but uh, yeah, they're they're a pretty neat species as well. So, I I always remember like back when I was a kid and I had had all my you know science books and stuff, and there's always like these diagrams, even in, through college and stuff, of like really bizarre looking ancient elephants with like tusks that came out the bottom of the mouth in a really weird way, just some really weird facial structures and short trunks and stuff like that i mean in general i suppose i mean how how long have elephants as a whole been around um you know for the distant relatives i'm not sure on the age on that but mm -hmm. african elephants you know in their somewhat current state have been around for about 1.5 million years wow wow that's impressive yeah <laughs> um where all do they live african elephants uh well you know asian elephants are obviously in uh very different areas. Yeah. Um, they're in 13 different countries in oh, Southern wow. and Southeastern Asia. So a lot of people don't realize that Asian elephants are um, in 13 different countries. You know, they're, they're kind of spread out a little bit more, but African elephants are exclusive to the African continent. Hmm. Um, there are large concentrations in Botswana, South Africa, and Eastern Africa. Um, they have been pretty much extirpated anywhere above, um, you know, they're all sub-Saharan Africa at this point. Um, you know, their range used to be over the entire continent, but they have definitely, um, populations have fallen dramatically. Um, and now they're just in different pockets across the continent. Hmm. I, th I think that's, um, I always think back to uh, high school thinking about rem remembering, uh, who was it? I think it was Hannibal from Carthage who went across whatever yeah. straight into Spain to, to go invade Rome with elephants through the mm -hmm. Alps. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And a lot of those elephants died on that journey. Yeah. I would imagine. I, I don't think that's really conducive to uh, elephants. It doesn't really work, no, but definitely not. Um, I've, I see a lot about elephant social behavior. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can talk about that for a moment. That's actually one of the things that, drew me to elephants that they have these fascinating social systems mm -hmm. so 
most of the time when you see a herd of elephants, it's going to be a, a matriarchal herd. It's going to be made up of the oldest female, who's the matriarch, the leader, and all of her offspring. Um, so when you see a herd, it's usually aunties and cousins, um, and they essentially stick together. And then when, once the herd becomes, you know, too large to kind of be unmanageable, oftentimes they'll, they'll split into separate herds. And usually that's anywhere from, you know, 12 to 16. It really, really varies. Mm -hmm. um, now males, once they're adult, actually live separately. So <clears throat> elephants are born into the herd, of course, and then are, you know, nurtured and protected by the entire herd at about 14. Uh, the males, which are the young bulls, are kind of going to get kicked out of the herd. So then they go on to grow and live um, in bachelor groups. Um, and that's one of the most fluctuating things and something that I'm looking at is they have these different social networks. So you might see two bulls together one day, and then you might not see them again together for a year. Um, <laughs> you might see bulls alone. And sometimes bulls will associate with... Um, with you know matriarchal herds they'll just join up for a couple days and hang out um, of course when it's time for bulls to mate they will find a suitable female and then they'll usually stay in consort with that female for two or three days um, so that it kind of you know defends off uh, fights off any other suitors or things like that um, so you have this real fluctuating dynamic with the males and then you have this real stable dynamic uh, with the females interesting and so, I mean, in terms of interaction with each other, I guess, within like the, uh, within the groups, I mean, how do they typically interact? Um, you know, they're very affectionate. There's, you know, especially with the, the young, uh, calves, they're playing with everybody. They're very curious. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons people are very drawn to elephants is they see a lot of, you know, human-like characteristics in that mom elephant has to go and get baby elephant out of trouble you know <laughs> uh, there's a lot of that going on but you know the entire herd really kind of looks after each other um and it's always interesting to see groups meet um because there's a you know another structure that smaller structure is you know mother and calf but then you also have um you know the matriarchal group and then there are larger groups that often come together like i mentioned um uh, with sometimes you'll see a hundred plus and that's usually when resources are really plentiful. There's no competition. Yeah. Um, so you'll get these amazing herds of 100 plus, and they may, they sometimes are all distant relatives. So you see a lot of um, recognition of other herds. Aww. Like if you sit and watch elephants for long enough and you see two different herds that are coming together, mm -hmm. you can tell if they know each other. <laughs> because it, it's a really happy, like they actually get really excited and they start trumpeting. Uh, they'll actually urinate and defecate. Um, so they're like, yay, I know you. Um, but then you might see two other herds come together and everybody's standoffish because it's not a familiar herd to them. Um, and a lot of that is really accomplished with a uh, sense of smell, but that's a, that's a whole episode in itself. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned the resources. Um, elephants are vegetarian, right? Yes, they're strictly okay. herbivores. Yeah. Um, so how, like, what, what all do they eat then? And how much do they have to eat? Because, I mean, they are very large, as we've already established. Um, I imagine they have to eat a lot. Yes. Um, uh, you know, a regular elephant, depending on the size, will usually eat between 200 and 600 pounds a day. Wow. And about 50 gallons of water, depending on size, again. Uh, so they're constantly moving and they're constantly eating. Sometimes it's really humorous to watch. They're like walking around and they're just chewing on something as they go. 
Um, <laughs> so they might, they might eat 12 hours out of the day. Um, and they prefer grasses. You know, they love treats like fruits and things like that. Uh, but when resources become scarce, um, they go a lot from uh, grazers into browsers. So they'll start um, getting a lot of things off trees and things like that. So um, you'll definitely see a shift in their diet when the resource availability changes. In terms of uh, uh, reproduction life cycle, I mean, what what is, I guess, that, that cycle? I mean, what is the... Um you know, the, are there any specific mating displays? Is, is that where tusks come in? How long do um, they live? All that yeah, stuff. Yeah, that is part of where tusks come in. Um, and tusks are this really multifunctional tool in African elephants. Mm -hmm. I mean, males use them to fight, um, but they also can use them uh, to dig. They can use it to help uh, get bark off of trees and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But males go into this kind of heightened, uh, aggressive sexual state called must. Um, and if you do work with elephants, there are some signs of must, um, an elephant's personality will really change. Uh, mm. some of the sweet boys that I've been working with get really cranky. They're getting, you know, filled with hormones. Uh, <laughs> you can actually smell an elephant in must if you're close enough. Um, and they start to, uh, they have uh, temporal glands in which they'll mm. start to leak fluid. Uh, they'll start to dribble urine uh, a lot. So. Um, and they get really angry. Wow. Um, so you really steer clear of a bull in must. Um, and, and I've had some really interesting encounters with that too, um, where I've, you know, an elephant that I'm familiar with and I'm like, what is, why are you acting like that today? And then I'll see the signs. I'm like, oh, he's in must. Let's leave him alone. <laughs> um, but um, so in this condition, they'll go out and they'll try to find females. Um, they will fight over females for sure. They will attack other bulls sometimes for no reasons. Um, but once they do find a mate, as I mentioned before, they might stay in consort. Um, and then uh, this is a shocker. Can you imagine being pregnant for almost two years? Holy cow. Really? It's about, about 23 months for African elephants. So um, the whole the whole reproductive cycle for females is they have one calf about every four years. Wow. Um, so they're pregnant for about 23 months and then they nurse for almost two years and then repeat. Uh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I just can't <laughs> imagine being uh, pregnant for two, for two years. Um, you know, and it's pretty easy to spot uh, a mother and uh you know, the relationship between mother and, and the entire herd and calf is always fascinating. You know, it's definitely a celebration when a calf is born. Um, an interesting thing about elephants, um, you know, baby elephants come out just, you know, ready to, ready to go, but they have to learn to use their trunks. So for <laughs> about, the, about the first six months, um, they're completely dependent on their mother's milk. Um, and then up to about two years, they're con they'll continue to um, nurse. But about that time, they start learning how to use their trunks and chew food and things like that and, and, and grass. So um, that's why one of the reasons it's so hard, you know, an, an elephant that's abandoned or something happens or mother's killed, you know, below six months of age, they have to be on a complete uh, milk diet. Um, but it's also pretty funny, too, because you might go to a water hole and see a real young elephant and they just kind of stick their face in the water. <laughs> so they just kind of teeter and, and, you know, stick their whole face in the water because they have to actually bend down the drink because they haven't quite figured out how to, to manipulate their trunk yet. And, and to be clear, because I feel like this is probably a misconception out there. They're not, 
they don't they're not like um drinking with their nose right they're, no yeah no so the trunk is actually a fascinating appendage with so many muscles it's so dexterous um it's definitely prehensile um that is actually their nose so if they were to suck water up their nose <laughs> it could as they could aspirate or you know drown so um it's you kind of view it like a snorkel i mean that's that's their their nose so um so what they do is they suck water into their trunk and then they they place it in their mouth and squirt it inside i imagine that's useful when you're when you're that large um, mm -hmm. it's super weird to think about. I can't really imagine having like a prehensile nose on my face. <laughs> I can barely wiggle my nose and I can kind of move my nostrils, but definitely can't give myself coffee with it. That's, mm -hmm. that's not there. <laughs> so there's one, another thing that's, uh, you know, a, a very commonly told thing. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, elephant memory. Is it really as good as people say? Elephant never forgets. Yes. Oh, and one thing I did forget to mention about uh, the life cycle. Oh, um, sure. Elephants usually live between 60 and 70 years. Oh, um, wow. That's a lot longer than I thought. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite long. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons that they, they actually die is they have six sets of molars, um, which is where they get their name from, a loxodontal uh, tooth pattern. And mm -hmm. um, as one wears down, another one moves forward. So usually near the end of their life, oh, like a conveyor? they actually can't chew uh, anymore. So, so that's one of the reasons that they expire is because, well, all their teeth are, are gone or almost gone. So, you know, um, that brings me to another question real quick is elephant graveyards. Are those really a thing? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> um, Dang so it, Lion King. <laughs> we'll do, we'll do graveyards and we'll go back to memory. Uh, so that is kind of a long held myth. Mm. Um, probably where that originated from is sadly, um, you would have these these gangs of people that would go out and kill a large amount of elephants in one place. Mm. So a lot of times, um, you know, early in the poaching crisis, you would go out and find, you know, 10, 20, 50 groupings of elephant bones and people kind of assume, well, they come here to die. Um, mm. Now, elephants do, um, they're very curious about the dead and bones. Um, they have, you know, they have, they definitely grieve. Um, you, you see them being very curious about those things. Um, but as far as them actually going somewhere to die, that's, that, that's pretty much a myth. Okay. Okay. And then you asked about memory. Yes. yes. That is one of the most fascinating things about elephants. So think about a, the matriarch, the person who is in charge of the herd. Um, mm -hmm. She makes all the decisions that where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Um, and in that amazing memory of hers is, oh, well, it was this drive 45 years ago. Where did we go? to get oh. water that one time. So there is an evolutionary advantage for elephants to have strong memories so that they can find food and water when resources are scarce. Um, because as you know, in Africa, there's a lot of periods of drought, sometimes extreme drought. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's an advantage to having that strong memory of, you know, how, how to move around, how to find resources and, and things like that. You know, I, I just heard a report um, about two weeks ago about a, uh, a parrot, I'm blanking on which kind of parrot, but a parrot that beat everyone it was put up against, including a class of Harvard students in a memory game where it was kind of a, <laughs> you know, the shell under the cup kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And every single time it got it and it, it beat everybody because their spatial memory is so good. Now I kind of want to see them face off against an elephant. Yeah. Oh, wow. Just, 
Yeah, I, I think there's an African grape memory berry. even than I do. <laughs> How about the uh, the intelligence piece? I mean, I see things about, um, you know, like painting, and, and uh, you, you touched mm-hmm. on the grieving. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I know that's also a hard thing to really measure is intelligence of something that isn't human. It's kind of... It is because, you know, they don't talk, but, um, yeah. but yeah, elephants have about three times the normal neurons of mm-hmm. um, a lot of other species. Wow. Um, and they rank up their intelligence with humans, apes, and dolphins. Um, you know, one of the tests that you can do is a self-recognition test. Um, you've probably heard of these before, mm-hmm. uh, where you put a, an elephant, uh, in front of a mirror, um, and you've put something on there, like you, you put paint on their head and, if the elephant recognizes themselves, they'll try to get that spot of paint off. Um, oh. So that's, that's, um, and we've seen that, uh, you know, apes and dolphins can do that as well. Um, so that's, and there's other, you know, measures of intelligence. And let me tell you, <laughs> a lot of my work has to deal with elephants that go into communities and crop rate and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that we face um, in designing different deterrent methods to keep elephants away um, from villages and their crops is challenged by the fact that elephants can figure things out. Um, I can't tell you how many different types of deterrent methods that are out there that you know were used for a while and they had to stop using them because the elephant became habituated or essentially figured out how to circumvent that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we have elephants that go and just grab poles and throw them out of the ground. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing about elephants is they're so smart. They can, they can sit and they can work out a problem over time. So it's, it's a real challenge to, uh, you know, to mitigating and promoting human, mitigating human elephant conflict and promoting human elephant coexistence is you're dealing with one of the world's smartest creatures who is constantly trying to outsmart you. <laughs> I imagine that's kind of difficult because everything you're doing, I mean, it's sort of like, okay, we have, uh, the Hulk, but he's intelligent. And um, so what are we going to do to protect? <laughs> like, yeah. I could see that getting kind of tricky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and as far as painting, um, y- you know, there's a, you've seen a lot of that probably on the Internet. Yeah. That is a trained behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, one of the most fascinating things about elephants is how curious they are about mm-hmm. everything. So you'll see them enter an environment. They'll pick up things. They'll walk around. They'll look at it. They'll examine it. Um, but there's never been any instances of an elephant just... Um, you know, wanting to, to show a, a creative aspect like that. So, um, you know, that's used a lot in the tourist industry where they've actually trained elephants to go and paint, um, you know, pictures and things like that. Now, you know, if an elephant decided to paint a picture, you know, even with that training, if it just uses its own intelligence, it's going to, you know, paint something that's very abstract and, and doesn't mm-hmm. have a, um, there's one video that I'm kind of referencing is, is where you know you see the elephant drawing another elephant um and that's a strictly trained mm. behavior the elephant did not just to wake up that morning and say i want to go paint another elephant so. <laughs> it's not like it said you know what mom i'm going to follow my passion and uh right beca- i'm going to be a, <laughs> become <now>. a painter <laughs> i don't want to live the typical elephant life yeah um yeah. <laughs> But they do, they do enjoy, um, you know, especially in a lot of zoo settings, they, they have to do a strong enrichment program for elephants because, you know, they're curious and they want to learn and they, and they really, they're really, they're really interested in anything new that you put in their environment. I know there's a lot of experiments that people have done where the elephant has come through and just kind of torn everything up or, (laughs) you know, picked everything up and moved everything just because they were trying to see, you know, what it was. (laughs) 
In terms of communication, I understand there's a lot of really fascinating stuff there. Oh, yes. So we could do an entire hour on elephant communication. <laughs> um, that's one of my favorite things about elephants, and I haven't had the opportunity to work specifically with it before. Mm -hmm. um, but elephants are probably one of, elephants have the best smell of any mammal, but they're also probably one of the most diverse communicators of mm -hmm. any mammals. Um, so there's several different forms that they use to communicate. Um, the first is just orally. So um, you'll hear them trump, you know, trumpet and rumble and things like that all the time when they're, you know, talking to their their fellow elephants or they're trying to convey something or they're frightened. Mm -hmm. um, but what you can't hear is that they actually communicate infrasonically too. So 20 hertz is about the normal level. Um, that humans can hear 20 hertz and above. Now, elephants can actually communicate way below that. So you could have an elephant herd passing in front of you that are, you know, quote unquote, talking to each other, and you could never hear it. Um, because, huh. yeah, that's, and that, and when I learned that as a kid, that was one of the things that blew me away is, wow, how, how is there something that, that does this? And there are other species that communicate infrasonically as well. Um, but also they communicate seismically. So they're, um, you know, it, even as those, uh, if those sound waves are lower and lower below that 20 hertz, they mm -hmm. can actually um, actually create a seismic rumble. And we think that has evolved because elephants, you know, can it helps them communicate uh, so far away. Um, and we think that they That's can actually crazy. sense this through their feet. Um, they have these amazing fat pads on the back of their feet, and they've got a lot of Pacinian corpuscles, mm -hmm. uh, which is a mechanoreceptor. So essentially, their feet mm. kind of act like a little seismograph, um, we think. <laughs> huh. um, so not only can they, can they interpret infrasonic signals, they can uh, interpret seismic signals. So if you have a herd of elephants, like you mentioned before, running, um, a herd might be able to detect that seismic, those seismic vibrations kilometers away um, wow i know um, that is and crazy. if that's not cool enough we've also got chemosensory behavior um so i mentioned that elephants have uh one of the greatest smells of any mammal probably the greatest smell um there they have different glands especially at their temporal gland and they these um are kind of constantly streaming and there is a signal that comes from uh, this, this, this streaming substance, usually frontalin, um, and an elephant can smell that substance and detect what kind of, I guess you would say a message that is trying to be received. Oh. Um, so there's been a lot, I've had, you know, a lot of my colleagues have worked on this. I've not uh, got to before. Um, but, you know, so there's, there's something like, you know, to keep it really simple, there's like a panic signal. There's like a happy signal. So, a lot of times you'll see elephants when they're coming to another herd and they'll immediately put their trunks up and they're trying to smell what kind of signals that they're getting. <laughs> so they can recognize individuals, but they can also recognize uh, those chemicals that are being emitted um, to see, oh, what's, you know, it's kind of like a newspaper. So what, what's happening? Are you guys happy? Are you guys sad? Uh, things like that. So it's, it's like their communication ability just blows me away. That is crazy. I, I'm so I'm so stuck on like it just think I, it th makes me think about like you know when the, you see the uh, typical like you know the British person tracking an animal and they put their ear to the ground and they're like yeah. listening. Yeah. But but they have four <laughs> mm -hmm. like on their feet. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's really cool. Yeah. 
Also, and does the sound when they when they trumpet is that coming out of their nose or is it their mouth? Uh, ooh, I'm not 100% sure on that one. I would think it would be uh I think I think they make sounds out of both. Okay. Um, but that would be one I'd have to I've never been sure if it's like blowing a tissue or if it's, you know, (laughs) kind of deceiving. Like, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize birds are making their their sounds by just kind of flexing. Yeah, I mean, definitely elephants do scream. So you'll see them opening their mouth to make noise. And I think most of the trumpets are are coming from the trunk area. Mm. Um, I I just want to I'd have to look that up to see the exact mechanism to be able to talk about that one a little more. Sure. That is just and then the 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 seismic thing is just fascinating. I... Yeah, yeah. And the one interesting thing about the infrasonic, and um, it's definitely one of the coolest experiences I've ever had, is um, if you think about when an air, like a, an airplane goes over, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can feel that rumble in your chest. Um, yeah. It's the same thing with an infrasonic signal with an elephant. So I've actually been laying in bed at night and sat up in the middle of the night, like, am I having a heart attack? Because I would, I felt this vibration in my chest. Oh. And I was like, what's <laughs> happening? And then a few seconds later, I heard the elephant nearby just go, and it was like, I was actually feeling the vibration. <laughs> that is awesome. No, it's, I, oh I my gosh. Was just talking about it. That's, that's probably, that's probably one of the coolest things that I've, I've experienced because you know, you kind of feel like you're being left out because like, oh, they're having this whole conversation and we can't hear it unless we have <laughs> the proper equipment. But in that instance, I, I got like a preview of, of you know, an elephant nearby. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, we could do a whole show on elephant communication. <laughs> oh, geez. That is just so cool. In terms of uh, impacts on the ecosystem, I mean, what role do elephants play? How do they impact their ecosystem? Oh, so much. Again, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. Uh, So elephants are considered keystone species and ecosystem engineers. So with keystone species, that means, uh, you know, if a keystone species is taken out of the environment, you could Mm -hmm. have something like a trophic cascade. You'd have really negative impacts on the ecosystem and and other animals. So that just means they really greatly affect um, any area that they live in. So one example of this is their amazing seed dispersers. Uh, When you ever find elephant dung, they actually only digest a small percentage of what they eat. So a lot of it passes through their digestive uh, system intact. So when you find elephant dung and you break it apart, you see it's covered, uh, sorry, it's, um, it's containing tons of different undigested seeds. Uh, so they've been called the mega gardeners of the forest um, because they really help with seed dispersal. And lots of different animals live in their dung. Uh, you'll see dung beetles, um, lots of other things like that. It's a little microcosm. Uh, so that's just one example of how they're keystone species. Um, and then I mentioned also that they're ecosystem engineers. And that means that they really physically transform uh, the environments that they're in. Uh, so elephants will sometimes dig for water with their tusks and their trunks. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll create wallows. So elephants love to be covered in mud. They love <laughs> water. Uh, so they'll find a muddy spot and they'll just lay down and wallow around. And this makes those wallows, which buffalo do the same thing, um, yeah. this makes them bigger and bigger. And over time, it can actually, you know, form a water hole. Um, they also, you know, push down trees. Um, and, they, and they're really good at transforming, you know, forest to savanna. So, um, you know, missing elephants in the ecosystem is really going to see a shift in that ecosystem and probably not for the better. Uh, so all the more reason that they need to be conserved in the environment. Um, 
you know, it'd be interesting to see some of the impacts now from not having elephants in the ecosystem. Uh, I know one study showed that the, you know, the tree diversity was much higher in areas where elephants were because they're spreading seeds and things like that. What I, I know that there's there's things impacting their populations. Um, yes. What drastic. what are they for the most part? So the biggest one, you know, historically has been uh, hunting them for ivory. I mean, we have seen we had millions of African elephants, and now they're down to around four hundred thousand. Um, there was a time, and I think this is the saddest thing for me, is you see some of these old photos, and you just see elephant herds for miles. And we have lost so many, we will probably never see that again. Um, so elephants are declining at about 8% per year. And as you wow. do the math, that's not a sustainable number. Um, and it's, it has traditionally been due to the ivory poaching. Um, you know, it's gotten a lot better recently, but we're still losing elephants every day to that issue. Um, ivory is worth more uh, than gold on the black market. Wow. Um, but habitat loss is another issue. Um, you have... Uh, so much of, of habitat in Africa has either disappeared or become fragmented. Um, and then the area that I work mostly in um, is the challenge of trying to get human elephant coexistence. So, um, you know, populations in Africa are very interesting because you have some elephants where there are no more elephants there. And then you have others like in Kenya where the population is slowly growing. Um, and there are actually some places that deal that have to cope with you know too many elephants and how to how to how to manage that problem and then there's some area where they're losing their elephants so it's really really site specific um, but where I work in Kenya um, you see the, the population starting to rebound just a little bit from you know the tragedy of losing almost I think 90% of the population um, in the 80s and 90s um, and they're moving back into these areas where they used to be you know again you've got that matriarch who's leading the herd well, 60 years ago, there, you know, there was, there was forest here. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't people in, in, yeah, yeah. in, in commerce or agricultural things like that. Um, so, I mean, that's one of kind of the um, things that I think a lot of Westerners don't know about. Um, you know, we've all heard about the poaching crisis. Definitely that's where resources should be uh, partitioned because that's something we have to get under control. Um, but human elephant conflicts also cost human and elephant lives every year in both Africa and Asia. Um, so you have people coming into contact with elephants uh, more often and you have a lot of these you know human elephant interactions become very negative with things like crop raiding, elephants will go and raid water tanks. Um, so you have to try to find this balance between people and elephants. Uh, because as we all absolutely adore them, uh, rightfully so, people that live with them usually view them as a pest. Yeah. Um, and 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 they can be terrified. So imagine yeah. we've talked about how how big elephants are, and mm -hmm. think about our our situation in maybe in the U.S. where you've mm -hmm. got this really great garden out back, and you keep having the you know like the deer keep eating your tomatoes. Yeah. You know. So imagine being uh, someone in rural Africa, no electricity, no mm -hmm. running water. Um, you go out your back door in the middle of the night and there's a seven ton elephant eating your corn, which is what you were going to use to feed your family or to yeah. earn money from the sale. So it's a very different dynamic than most people are usually aware of. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's something that we're starting, you know, is predicted to increase. Yeah. Um, and, you know, being so fearful in their own communities, a lot of times African people will lash out towards elephants. Um, mm -hmm. They might poison them or, 
you know, most people just go out in the middle of the night and try to run them away. Um, but mm -hmm. they can get killed by elephants as well. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's really a, a situation that a lot of people are working towards trying to find this, you know, happy state of coexistence to where people see the benefit of elephants um, and, you know, they're not taking losses from elephants. And then, um, you know, an important part of that too, um, and it's kind of the work that I'm moving more towards now um, is the sociological aspect of it. So yeah. trying to educate, educate communities on how to safely live with elephants, you know, how to, how to approach an elephant if it's out in the community, uh, things like that. Many people have never, many people have never even had a chance to go to a national park. So yeah. they've not been, uh, you know, really given the opportunity to appreciate what wildlife does mm -hmm. for Africa. Um, and, and, and there's a real disparity in, um, you know, that, that benefit from tourism that you see for elephants. So, you you know, like in Kenya, there's a huge amount of money uh, influx from tourism, you know, driven by elephants and other amazing species. But people that might live in the town next to a national park might benefit from that because they get tourists, they have jobs in the lodges, but someone 50 kilometers away that's trying to just have a small farm, yeah. they don't any benefit they don't they don't see any of those benefits because they're not they're not profiting for it they're struggling um so for me that's kind of the focus of my work is showing people that um it's it's a very unsimple situation yeah. in that um you know these amazing creatures deserve preservation but there's also a human dimension to it where people that are greatly impoverished are having to um you know try to eke out a living living amongst or near elephants. You know, one of the, um, I feel like I see this pop up a lot. It's a really complicated, especially when there is an animal who used to be really abundant in a certain area and then their populations were driven down. And now that they're making a comeback, you know, they're coming back into places where people have now moved in. And mm -hmm. that is not a good recipe for success right. most of the time. It's a recipe for a disaster, yeah. yeah. Um, I, one of the really interesting examples was uh, we talked to uh, Dr. Kustub Sharma um, with Snow Leopard Trust uh, a few months back, and he talked about how you know they work with the local rural communities um, to foster more you know acceptance of snow leopards, especially if snow leopards are depredating on on cattle or livestock, and they have local insurance companies basically or local insurance programs that people pay into, and mm -hmm. then so if they have a loss, you know then they can cover it however that's on a much smaller scale much less often and snow leopards are lone as compared to large groups of elephants <laughs> yeah. so i can imagine that's tricky yeah and that's just and that's just you know elephants are just one example of human wildlife conflict and coexistence mm -hmm. that is increasing across the globe you know we see it here with the wolves and uh, yeah. ranchers um and you know and elephants aren't the only concern for a lot of people in the areas where I work. I mean, they have hyenas coming to try to eat their goats and chickens. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as the human population increases across the world, we're simply coming into contact with animals more often. So there's inevitably going to be, um, you know, these contentious events. And that's where, you know, a lot of people are trying to work at this interface and figure out how we can mitigate it and manage it in, in a way that benefits both the people and the wildlife. And what an interesting kind of dynamic to think about of, because it is, you know, especially here in the U.S. and, and elsewhere, you know, there's such a love for African wildlife. Mm 
and um, I, you know, such a you know desire to protect and preserve, and, and rightfully so. Um, but th- that's it gets tricky because you know you're on the outside looking in, and mm-hmm. you're you know watching BBC and you see such beautiful stuff, and you're like, why would anybody? desire to harm these animals in any way Um, if you're not living with them directly affected by them you know i imagine it's hard to really have any honest perspective for the most part um exactly yeah that's tricky yeah that's exactly the 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 issue is um you know unless you're in the middle of it you just don't see it um and i do want to mention we have some amazing partners um part of our research group is wildlife works um and and they're one of the largest red plus plus carbon impact and um, carbon initiatives in the world. And that is part of what they do. They make wildlife work for the people. So, mm. um, you know, they, the elephants are, as they're moving through the communities, you know, they have all these different programs that bring jobs to the communities um, and things like that. And that's part of one of the things I'm working towards doing is, you know, creating these alternative means to farming for people, these, these alternative um, livelihoods. Um, yeah. Because, you know, crop rating is probably the most common form of uh, human-elephant conflict, but what's driving it isn't really the elephants. It's the fact that the community is, is, is really impoverished, and yeah. a lot of them have been farming for generations, and that's their tradition. That's what they want to keep doing. But you also have these other factors, like they don't have access to markets. They don't have access to earn other ways, of, other means of income. Yeah. Um, you have a changing climate to where you're, you either have floods or droughts. Um, you know, when I was there last year, we went six months without any rain. Uh, we have entire crop, there's two crop, uh, there's two seasons to, um, for, for farmers in, in Kenya. Um, and, you know, sometimes a complete season, a season will be a complete failure. Um, but people don't, they, you know, there's many climate smart agricultural techniques that can be introduced. Uh, there's different alternative crop types that can be introduced. Um, you know, people don't use irrigation because a lot of times the water is so scarce. So just finding out, finding ways um, to make agriculture work or even better to move people away from agriculture as their only means of income. And if you can do that, then when an elephant comes and takes 10% of your crop, yeah, you know, it's not to happen at all, but yeah. it's not devastating. Yeah. So, so that's the key is, you know, there's all these other drivers and factors that are involved in this issue. Um, and if we can address those, it, you know, it can perhaps ease tensions a bit and make, make things more tenable. That, I mean, that makes complete sense. That, that makes complete sense. You know, one thing I, I'm kind of curious about if, um, I believe I saw somewhere, you know, maybe a year or so ago that, um, it's increasingly common for elephants to simply be born without tusks um, as a result of poaching pressure. Is that yeah. accurate? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, um, so, you know, it's it's basically a form of artificial selection, mm-hmm. uh, genetically. So if you're born without tusks, you're not going to get poached. So you're going to survive to create more offspring. Ah, so sure. Yeah, so it's just a matter of over time, elephants with small tusks or no tusks have been selected for because they're not killed. Those genes have been selected for. Um, so they're, they've, you know, they're persisting more in the population. So, sure. I mean, it's definitely an advantage in an area with high poaching to be, to have no tusks. 
So it's not a uh, it's not like a Lamarck situation where you know you get your tusk cut off and then therefore your offspring have no tusk. It's a it's a there's a normal component in the population of being right. tuskless and it's just increasing as exactly. time goes on. Sure. Precisely. Yeah, that's what's happening. Is is you know you know a hunter's not going to face down an elephant if he can't get a, a poacher is not going to face down an elephant if there's no benefit you know which would be the tusk. So you know again that one that one just survives to propagate its genes down the line. I know this is an incredibly layered, dynamic, very difficult topic, but I'm wondering if we can spend a moment on trophy hunting. Uh, sure. Now, um, again, yeah, that is a very contentious topic. Um, now, I work in a system where there is not trophy hunting, so mm -hmm. I steer clear of it a little bit because I have not had firsthand experience with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the system that I work in, trophy hunting is not allowed um, so, and then there are other systems where it is. So, you know, it's really a debate that kind of continually goes on in conservation, um, you know, because one side says, you know, we don't need to be killing any animals. And the other side says, but, you know, the profits from this can help fund conservation. Um, I would contend that like neither model is really working <laughs> right now. Like yeah. we are losing biodiversity at, at a completely unmanageable rate. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as far as elephants as well, personally, knowing their their social structure, um, yeah. removing an individual from that population is going to be extremely detrimental. But again, you know, that's, that's a debate that I can't really contribute to because I have not been in a, um, I have not been in a conservation system where that is mm -hmm. present. So I don't like to, I don't like to weigh heavily one way or sure. the other. Um, but there is a debate to be had. Um, but mm -hmm. I just saw some information the other day that somebody was saying, like, you know, yeah, we're debating this, but but really nothing's working. Like, we're still losing species. We still don't have enough funding for conservation. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would I would like to keep learning more about the two sides of that argument mm -hmm. um, from people that have been in a successful system. You know, I one one thing that I have heard and seen quite frequently, especially as of late, as uh, one of the reasonings or maybe not reasonings, but I've seen a lot where people say, well, you know, the way that we're trying to do this type of hunting is by only taking older individuals that are beyond breeding age. Right. Um, but I imagine in an elephant system that could, you know, as you've said, you know, it's matriarchal, it's, it's older, you know, are, are kind of the leaders. I imagine that that, like you said, could be quite detrimental to the system as a whole. Yeah. So, I mean, an elephants are elephants breed right up till they almost pass so oh wow i mean bulls bulls will breed in their 50s um they they start senescing there and probably have less bouts of musk and everything so mm -hmm. um yeah i mean it's it's one of those situations that you you know and it's hard to just come down yes or no yeah right away you probably would have to even look at it possibly on an individual animal basis mm -hmm. in terms of like a take-home message for people i mean what what do you have either in terms of conservation or appreciation for elephants or mm -hmm. well elephants are really amazing <laughs> <laughs> and are deserving of any means of conservation uh possible but they are by no means the only uh species out there you know elephants mm -hmm. get a lot of t attention because of all the things we've talked about they're this charismatic megafauna but you can often find that 
you know, the things that people aren't as excited about, such as bugs and, 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 and snakes and things like that, have an equally important part in the ecosystem. Uh, so I would say, you know, absolutely, let's, let's, let's conserve elephants, but don't forget that they're just one piece of this huge puzzle of the biodiversity that is so important to conserve. And right now, um, those, the, the rate that we're losing species is, is not manageable. And if you think that losing species of animals is not a big deal, then <laughs> uh, I've got news for you, it's, it's all connected. Um, think if all of a sudden we didn't have any bats, we would be overrun with mosquitoes. So um, something that may not seem all that important to you is gonna have a cascading effect in the ecosystem. So if you think that it won't affect you, you're wrong. Somewhere down the line, it will impact your life in a way. So I think it's important uh, for everyone to be as involved as possible in, in preserving as many species as we can. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, and thank you again, Lynn, because uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I know it was about a year ago. We've been in a little bit of communication since, but um, it was it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And uh, all of you who are out there listening, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, um, feel free to uh, leave a rating or a review or just even share the episode with someone you think might be interested. Uh, definitely be sure to check out the episode notes for uh, links to Lynn's social media and her website, as well as a few other things as well as a few other things, including how to support our show at patreon.com slash the wildlife for as little as a dollar a month. Again, thank you for listening and peace out rainbow trout.